40 weeks after Politicon began this podcast in an attempt to discover how the heck are we going to get along. America remains in lockdown, and the virus continues to surge. But the political landscape has changed a little bit, with a new president-elect on track to take the White House and end four years of Donald Trump rule. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon welcomes back our very first guest from our first episode to recap the year. TYT host John Idarola joins us this week to recap the changes since he first joined us in our initial in-person recording. What have the events of 2020 done to America? And what has 2020 meant for our future? And how the heck are we going to get along? How has America been? I mean, have we been happy because we no longer have <laughs> President Trump as a president? Have we been uh, sad because of that? Have we been sad because Democrats didn't? I mean, like, how have we been? <laughs> I guess, I mean, it depends, I guess, on what household you're in. Uh, my family's just been, you know, trying to get by and everything, trying to keep up as much of our normal life as possible, considering. How about you? How have you been? Um, well, I ain't left the house and I don't know how long anyway. I mean, personally, <laughs> I'm happy that we have... I think I think comfortably at this point can feel like uh, Donald Trump will not be president come January twentieth in the afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it's it, I do I do I do find that the answer is different based on who. Obviously, listen. Obviously, the answer is going to be different if you're talking to a Republican or a Democrat. But even amongst Democrats, I find that the answer is a little bit different. Some people feel we had a Democrats won the election. Other people feel they didn't. We've had Jenk and um, Anna, and but you're you were our first guest too. So we're one of our first. So this is kind of exciting because we're we're almost forty weeks into this yeah. experiment that that turned. Like I think we only had two episodes where we had a panel. Like well, we had yeah, and, uh, yeah. I don't know if you remember, but um, I was actually a bit cautious about. I wasn't sure we were going to go through with the panel because that was just as it was starting to like there were whisperings of lockdowns. Right. Well, I didn't even. I mean, I'm in North Carolina now, so I hadn't even heard anything about this this virus <laughs> when I last saw you. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I did your show, but and I knew it then, obviously. But when we first did this first episode. I had not heard a word about it, and then I flew back to North Carolina, flew back to L.A. the following week. We did another panel, and that night, we were all getting messages on our phones about lockdowns, and I thought, holy crap. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll see you guys in two weeks, maybe three. <laughs> well, here we I are. I thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world has happened? How naive we were. 40 weeks later, but I mean, it's sort of having you back on is sort of a cool little glimpse into how much has changed since we last spoke, right? <laughs> so, I think so. I think it's good to mark the the halfway point in that right. way. Um, Lord, I hope we're further than half <laughs> through it. But the, you know, coronavirus is obviously still getting bigger. You're in LA still. You're in California, right? Yes. Yeah, so, in Culver City. So you guys are back on um, restrictions uh, and lockdowns, and I'm hearing curfews now as well. Um, I suppose it doesn't really affect me. I never went back to the gym or, you know, a movie. Th- I haven't had a meal indoors. So, you know, <laughs> it's pretty much the same for me. God, could you imagine just if we all as a nation weighed ourselves at the beginning of this oh and after? I, I, ha- I have, man. <laughs> I, have I did say something to somebody. I'm, I'm on actually, it's stupid, but I'm on a thread with all of my 
Idol finalists, all my season two folks, and yeah. we talk to each other on this text thread still. And I, somebody mentioned the other day, and I said, I don't think I've worn pants that didn't have elastic in the waistband <laughs> since maybe <laughs> Ma May. <laughs> it is a it is a wow. new world. I'm afraid to go try on something that buttons. I mean, I'm wearing jeans, but I'm not wearing a belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a oh Lord a new world. But yeah. if folks are, some folks are certainly feeling more positive about. You know, I, I saw. I guess today was the day that. Um, the sun set in the very f- furthest northern reaches of Alaska, and it'll be the last t- when it's set today at one thirty in the afternoon. It won't come up again until January twenty third of twenty twenty one. You know they're wow. going into their polar night, and it th- dawned on me. Well, you know, that's just three days after the sun may rise here in the rest <laughs> of the country too. <laughs> so I have seen I have seen the end of twenty twenty the election as a bit of a metaphor for. This mm-hmm. hell of a dark winter <laughs> that we've been through, and perhaps there is some light uh, at the at the end of this. But but when I asked you how you're feeling, you still give me I still get a sense of maybe not as excited as others are. Is that fair? I mean, I'm definitely excited about some things. Like I, you know, despite the fact that um, I Joe Biden was not my first choice in the primary, he probably wouldn't have been my fourth or fifth choice. Um, uh-huh. I did advocate strongly for him um, uh, because I think that there are very significant differences, some of which will be immediately apparent. I mean, some of which are already apparent. He hasn't even been sworn in yet. Um, but some on day one will be, it'll be very different. And, you know, every day that he remains as president is a day where there's at least the potential that he'll, he'll do some good for the American people. And it's another day where Donald Trump and more importantly, the Donald Trump cinematic universe aren't all there wreaking havoc on the judiciary and the EPA and labor and all of that. So yes, I am, I am very excited, but we are currently in uh, a time post-election that is very fraught with terrible implications for, for the future of our democracy, the way that the election results are being treated. Um, and I can, I only had about 48 hours of sort of relatively pure joy before I started thinking about the conflicts to come and, and, I, I believe that we have entered a period that might be better in some significant ways from the Trump years, but I do think that what was like, sort of awakened by Donald Trump, there will be other people who are going to be trying to follow in his footsteps, and some of them might even be savvier than he was, and, and that does that does make me nervous. And what do you mean by uh, in his footsteps? Do you mean in his footsteps with his political positions, or do you mean in the way he campaigns and the— the I, I think probably a, a, depending on the individual who's you know stepping into those footsteps, it'll probably be a little bit different for each of them. I think it'll be some of his political positions. I mean, he doesn't have that many, but there will be some things. You know, there will probably be future calls for Muslim bans and things like that. Uh, more, I think it'll be an ideological approach to political opposition to the media to regular citizens who don't support your party, there is a level of constant, voracious aggression that we haven't seen before. And I think that one of the most important aspects of it, 
um, that I would say that's underlining it isn't necessarily exemplified just by Trump in, you know, the way that he's contesting the election results and all of that. But Mitch McConnell, the way he's acted in term, in regards to um, confirming these judges, they have realized something that I guess we're lucky they didn't realize earlier is that there are no consequences for anything. Mm-hmm. Norms don't actually exist. Shame has really no power. And as long as your base is as, insert an adjective, as long as they're as anti-democratic as you, as long as they're as xenophobic as you, they're not going to punish you for being those things. They've been secretly and increasingly publicly desperate for those things for a long time. And so Mitch McConnell's not worried about the Dems making an issue of him, you know, ramming through Amy Coney Barrett. His base wants that. They don't care if he's being hypocritical. They liked the, the both of those positions that were hypocritical when he was against, um, you know, confirming under Obama and when he's for it now. They like both of those. They can make that switch just as easily as he can. Yeah, well, last time we, we spoke at, on this show, we talked a lot about the media role in, in that because that particular panel that week had some strong opinions on the media's role. Do you think that, that Mitch McConnell believes that or do you think that he believes that the media or at least the right-wing media will help him convince his base not to not to give him any consequences for it i mean is it um, is it the is it the fact that the base who's which came first the chicken or the egg who's leading it is the media leading hmm. these followers to to forgive mitch for that type of thing or the, the do you really think that americans even the ones we vehemently disagree with, do you re- do we really think that they don't care about hypocrisy or ha- that they've been trained not to? Uh, uh, I mean, I think, uh, obviously, I think it's probably a combination of the two. I think that it is relatively easy to convince a person to accept a thing that results in an outcome that they wanted to happen anyway. Like, the mm. process might not be exactly like they would have preferred, but especially when they've been trained to believe that the opposition is terrible in in every possible way. Whether you're like a traditional, you know, Republican who maybe thinks that the Democrats, you know, they inspire people to be lazy or not contribute or whatever. Maybe you're, you know, a Trump fan that believes that all of this is about fighting and trolling and lib tears. Or if you're a QAnon follower who believes that these Democrats are literally satanic pedophiles, everybody can find an excuse to not worry about the process being unfair to the other side. They are, after all, um, their opponents. I don't think that everyone is exactly the same as Donald Trump. I don't think that Mitch McConnell will comport himself exactly as Donald Trump does. But I think at least in a few areas, like with uh, coronavirus aid and with the judges, he has realized that he at least, and I guess enough of the Republican senators that he cared about their reelection chances, weren't going to be hurt by these things. And he was proven, for the most part, right. He got reelected. The vast majority of the Republicans, even in a year where they had to defend a ton of seats, got reelected. You know, they didn't really have to deliver uh, for the American people when it came to coronavirus aid. Um, and it doesn't really seem to have hurt them. I'm baby but, Martha but McSally, that but that wasn't necessarily only the Trump supporters who did that, though. Do you think? I mean, certainly we've seen over the course of the past four years a base of Trump supporters around about 35% who would not care if he literally took a crap on their lawn. <laughs> but there's still there's still a a chunk of voters who what that 
you know, that got him 48, 49% of the mm-hmm. vote that looked at the other side and either felt he was preferable to Joe Biden or felt he was preferable to Democrats or, mm-hmm. and, and in some cases, more than that, reelected someone like Susan Collins or reelected someone like Tom Tillis here in North Carolina or Lindsey Graham mm-hmm. in South Carolina. So it's not just that base, is it? There's a there's another 14 to 15 percent of folks who didn't decide perhaps until after the first or second or third debate or who split the ticket. So what are who are they? Uh, I, I think, again, that's probably a combination of a few things. I think, you know, the, the the people who wanted more Lindsey Graham are probably different in a lot of ways than those who wanted more Susan Collins. Fair. Um, I mean, Lindsey Graham <laughs> has basically made his political identity over the past few years being the guy who supports Trump more than literally anyone else. Right. Um, yeah, he's right between, like, Don Jr. and Eric and how much he supports uh, the, <sighs> their dad. But yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, I think the Susan Collins people... They they love this idea that there are still old school Republicans, and she look at, to her credit. I guess she sometimes does disagree with him. Other times, she's strategically allowed to vote against him, regardless of what she really believes. And with Amy Amy Coney Barrett, just a couple of weeks before the election, she did come out against that, which you know, rightly or wrongly, burnished her relative independent credentials. So I think that that probably helped her. I think that those 14%, look, some of them are going to be more traditional conservative voters who are single-issue voters, whether it's, you know, maybe it's the, the the abortion group, maybe it's a foreign policy thing. But then there's probably also, there's going to be a couple percentage points of people who think that Joe Biden is actually some sort of insane socialist. It's a combination, I think, of a lot of different things. Which is and incredibly think- ironic, considering you don't think he's far enough left, right? I mean, no, I don't think it is. No. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it is. so it's ironic. <laughs> it's very funny that that people think that he's a socialist. I want to talk about the Susan Collins things for for a second, though, mm-hmm. because I, you know, when the Amy Coney Barrett thing happened, I'm a big Supreme Court nerd and just absolutely <laughs> live and die on everything Supreme Court um, and am fascinated by it, was not just heartbroken that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, but was yeah. incredibly heartbroken by the fact that that opened up this window or this door for Donald Trump to to put a third very conservative justice on the bench. And I found myself in an argument slash discussion, I try not to argue, um, <laughs> with people uh, a few weeks after or a week or so after he had announced and before uh Every senator had sort of staked their ground on this, and we had we had heard folks like Lisa Murkowski were going to oppose the idea of it. We had heard that Susan Collins was going to co- oppose the idea of it, um, but we were waiting on folks like Tom Tillis or Cory Gardner to make a mm-hmm. decision. And I asked a friend of mine about Cory Gardner specifically, but I'll ask you sort of the same thing. If Cory Gardner had, in the heat of his race— stepped out and said, you know what, I am going to oppose Amy Coney Barrett simply because I don't believe that this current president should uh, name the replacement. We should live by the standard we set after Merrick Garland, and the next president should name the replacement. If Cory Gardner had said that, would you or would other progressives have been willing to say, you know what, we should vote for him? We should support him. (laughs) Look, obviously, it's a good question. 
Um, partially because you know the answer, but no, no, it's a totally fair question. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, definitely right. not. Um, and the person who I asked, in, in fairness, was not nearly as progressive as you are, at least politically, in in the political sense, policy wise, maybe mm-hmm. so, but politically was not. And I said to her, "Well, then, what is the point of ever? What is the point of ever moderating?" So. I kind of I I asked that question because I want to in in the sense that Susan Collins did win, which mm-hmm. you know I think shocked a lot of people. I think a lot of people thought she was going to end up losing to Sarah Gideon. But yep. is there not some benefit or some relief that might that that we might take from the fact that okay, there are still people out there who are still willing, maybe just in Maine, to respect that sort of moderation, to respect that sort of independent thinking. Had she lost and Sarah Gideon won, yes, Democrats would have had that other seat in the in the Senate for at least six years. But perhaps on the Republican side, we would have found that Susan Collins would be replaced by Paul LePage up there mm-hmm. the next time around. And we'd end up no longer ever having any independent thinking Republicans at all. Like, if you're going to, if you can't get rid of Republicans, shouldn't you be happy about those few that might occasionally vote with you? Uh, I, I think that there's probably a case to be made, but I would say, like, I, I guess well, part of what you said was then what's the, then what's the point? Why should Susan Collins moderate or whatever, which is a perfectly fair question. Um, I think the relative independence that she had from the harder right conservatives probably is what has allowed her to continue on in a state that's a little bit bluer anyway up until this point. I think there's a reason the Democrats try to present her as more conservative, more Republican, tie her to Donald Trump. It's because they think that that's not representative of the state. Um, For some of the others, in, in terms of the election, it doesn't necessarily, oh, for, for one thing, Cory Gardner is not trying to convince me to vote for him, but there are a lot of people in every state that are not as to the left as me, and he might successfully convince some of them who don't necessarily have as durable a party identification as I do. Don't well, necessarily he didn't. F- <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, he sure didn't this time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But, but that's but, fine. Um, if Hickenlooper's par- okay with that, so he's fine. <laughs> that, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, partially it's trying to convince people to support you. Partially, it's not saying and doing things that are so abhorrent that you know internationally the other side d- decides to either raise tons of money or spend tons of money as a result of it. We've seen a few instances of that. But also, like, if we are going to get back to a time where, in theory, the parties could work together. And and I would probably dispute how beneficial to most of the American public that time actually was. Then what needs to happen is it needs to be present, at least in a few cases on both sides. And that isn't really what I've seen over the past few years. What, what I've seen is Democrats like Joe Biden, who talk constantly about how we're going to have that bipartisanship and we're going to like reach across the aisle, Joe, or, um, uh, Barack Obama, obviously, for the vast majority of his first term, probably bleeding into his second thought that that was possible, and they were shown to be inaccurate in that belief. And the issue is that there's not just a disparity in terms of how much each side is really trying to work with the other, it's that there's sort of an opportunity cost to this, that for the most part, and feel free to disagree, the Democrats come in because there are big things they think need to be done. I, I as a leftist, think that they don't think 
you know, big enough, that their solutions aren't big enough, but they are, in theory, trying to do things like the ACA and, you know, fixing student loan debt, stuff like that. A lot of the Republicans are, for the most part, perfectly happy to just stop those things from happening. You know, theoretically, every eight years they pass a tax cut or something like that. Maybe they want to shut down a little bit of refugees coming in. But for the most part, the system seems to be working for them. And so grinding things to a halt doesn't hurt both sides equally. It hurts the people who are hurting more than the people who are currently benefiting. Isn't that what conservatism is, though? I mean, listen, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm going to ask the question. Conservatives don't want to make as many changes by definition, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Ideologically, I think that's accurate. I would say that that is that is out of step, not just with what I would consider to be an objective read of what the American people need and understand I exist within a bubble, obviously, so I'm probably wrong. But even how they present their side, they talk, you know, in 2016, they were talking about how these are the people who've been left behind. Well, then what have you done over the past few years? Like, like you can't afford to just block any sort of solutions to these problems unless what they were left behind in was just not the sort of rhetoric they wanted. We had a really interesting conversation last week with Anna Paulina Luna, who was a Republican, Trump-supporting Republican, uh, who ran against Charlie Crist in Florida um, mm-hmm. in this year's election. She lost uh, lost by a smaller margin than I think a lot of people expected her to, uh, be honest. But she... I found it sort of fascinating. She is an unapologetic supporter of Donald Trump, um, and she uh, ran on a platform of, um, I hope I don't misrepresent her, so forgive me if you're listening and I make a complete mistake, but she ran on a platform in part of being pro-life and being uh, pro-Second Amendment. I'll use that phrase instead mm-hmm. of anti-gun control. But um, she, those were her two big major issues. But as we talked about other things um, in her defense, I guess, she was sort of, after having run, really a big supporter of things that I told her, you know, you're, you're kind of acting like a Democrat here. She was a big supporter of things like getting rid of money in campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. She was not quite willing yet to to distance herself or, or say no to certain changes in uh, other programs like healthcare, perhaps. Um, and I asked her, I said, I mean, I don't want to hurt you if you ever run for anything as a Republican again, Anna, but you mm-hmm. sound a lot like a Democrat here. And the conversation from there sort of turned to this belief that I have, only me, and maybe I'm, and you may disagree with this too, but that a lot of people in my world here in in solidly purple North Carolina are almost on the same page policy-wise with a lot of Democrats. They can, can see the benefit of something like uh, a single-payer health care at the very least. They can, I mean, some of them can even see the benefit of universal health care, but at the very least single-payer health care. They absolutely can see and understand the benefit of, of college loan um, forgiveness or debt forgiveness. They can see the benefit of, oh, she was very much against corporate interest having any power or influence in politics. I think mm-hmm. universally so many people see that as a as a deleterious uh, part of our our government when when so much corporate interest and lobbyists are involved. I mean just the list goes on and on that people tend to dis- tend to agree with Democrats on so many things and yet Anna Paulina Luna was running as an unapologetic 
convinced that she was a Republican. And I scratch my head about that. I imagine you probably have scratched your head once or twice about it, too. Why is it that Democrats actually seem to have policy positions that a lot of Americans agree with individually, but just will not vote for a Democrat because they do not believe that Democrats stand for the policies that will help them in their life. What is what is wrong with Democrat branding? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't necessarily disagree with that position, that I think there are far more positions that Democrats hold technically that are very popular than those But then why can't we convince that- people? Why why can't we convince voters or why, why can't we convince Yeah, why can't the, we get voters? I mean, why why is but, it that that well, people are running as Republicans when she actually agrees with Democrats on things? Well, I think I think part of the problem isn't just with the voters. Like sure, there's, you know, there's people have been misinformed, there's, you know, that sort of thing, but I think part of it is a semi-accurate read of the the actual extent to which these Democrats really prioritize and will actually make good on like it's one thing to put something in a stump speech; it's another thing to actually prioritize it and make it happen. I mean, I, I would say that even in like, we're still weeks out from or two months out from Joe Biden being inaugurated. And I'm already starting to question quite a bit of what he said, considering some of the people that he's choosing for his cabinet. Like I, I liked some of the things, the positions that he took. Some of the, um, for instance, his his climate proposal I thought was pretty good. It's not what I would have written, but it was pretty good. But Okay, if one of like the five first people you choose to be involved literally in liaisoning with um, environmental activist groups is like the fifth highest recipient of fossil fuel funds, is that an oversight that shows that you don't really think that that sort of money corrupts people? Or is it a signal to me to let me know that you really don't care about that? No, like, I, didn't, I didn't add fossil fuels and, 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 and environmental stuff on my list of things that I find a lot of people agree with us on. Um, uh-huh. so, so I'm talking about, uh, I, I guess— Well, you mentioned single-payer health care, right? Right. So okay. Joe Biden says that he's for the public option. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess to some extent I should be happy about that because it's better than some Democrats. It also feels pretty bad to be basically back to where Obama was promising back during the initial run up to the ACA. Like at one but point he get. was going to be pushing for it. No, he didn't get it. But I, I would also argue there's probably a reason we didn't get it. It just... Like, he he said that he was going to, you, you mentioned student loan debt, so he mentioned, you know, that he's in favor of some form of uh, abolishing that, and Chuck Schumer came out, like, to, to Chuck Schumer's credit, came out and said, day one, you don't need the legislature, you can cancel $50,000, and we're not even to his inauguration yet, and Biden is talking about some lower threshold that's means-tested, and they always have to complicate everything. <sighs> It's frustrating. Like, they're not coming at it like warriors who who really feel like an activist does, that this is something that is beating people down and it needs to be fixed. They're coming at it as something that, like, yeah, maybe we get to it, you know? And I feel, I feel like regular people sort of get that. They get that this is not someone who really feels in their bones, in their blood, that these are injustices that need to be fixed. But they choose Republicans who have not even not even paid lip service to that. I mean, who've completely mm-hmm. said that they are against single-payer health care, who've said they are against forgiving student loan debts. So there's still something that we're missing. I mean, I hear I can hear your argument that, okay, we may pay lip service but not get anything done. And, and, and correct me if I'm 
misquoting you or misrepresenting what you're saying, but why I can get I can give you that, but why are they going to the Republican Party who doesn't even give them that lip service? I mean, there there there's got to be something more than just the fact that Democrats aren't liberal enough or not following through with some of these liberal policies as far as they should. There's a reason that we have. I mean, what is the reason that rep- that Democrats have repelled white voters to the extent that I think we're? I mean, we haven't seen it in decades. Why? Why are white voters going to the Republican Party in such droves now, or at least going to Trump in such droves that mm-hmm. we didn't even see with when Obama was running for president? Um, well, I, I think it's good that you broke it down along those lines because my response was going to be that that sure, you know, in, in a lot of House races and in, in quite a number of Senate races, obviously they have gone for the Republican. Nationally, Republicans basically never win the popular vote. They know right. they, they're barely even campaigning to win it. They're just assuming at this point they're going to lose it and they're going to win the Electoral College. Trump has even retreated from that position. Now they don't even think they need to win the Electoral College. But 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 right. sure, um, <laughs> when you when you break it down along racial lines, yes. Um, I don't know exactly how the final numbers for Joe Biden are going to work out. I think that he did a little bit better amongst white women, but I think Donald Trump is probably still going to end up winning the majority of them, which is a whole nother um, headache. I, I mean, my response would be that clearly the Republicans are offering something. They're not offering actual, um, you know, sort of substantive financial improvements to people's quality of life. Um, they're barely even promising that. Like, I, I don't know what Donald Trump's platform was for his re-election. He was asked multiple times by very friendly interviewers, including Sean Hannity, what are what are your priorities when you get re-elected? And he would change the subject. We went, we're past the election. I still don't know what he wants the second term for, but they are offering something. I think, you know, it, it's, it's a big conversation, but I think that there's no stronger or more campaigned on form of identity politics than white identity politics as practiced by the Republican Party. And I think that the a lot of these voters, especially a lot of these poor white voters, would go for the party that offers policies that would improve their quality of life if they actually believe that it was going to happen. And if they don't actually believe it's going to happen, then they're going to go for the party that's going to do something else. And the Republicans are definitely trying to appeal to those people, but not with things like health care and, you know, um, student loan debt repayment, like those sorts of things. Like, So you think, so you believe that the way to win that particular block of voters back is to do more for them. Yeah, I, I and I think it would be relatively easy if you were to actually deliver, I think. And look, Joe Biden, Joe Biden is not a leftist, he's not a socialist. I know this is going to come as a shock to some conservatives. He's not actually a pre- he's not he doesn't he's not a devotee of Mao. He's really not, but <laughs> I believe today's try. I believe today's <laughs> press conference taught us that their new true. <laughs> boogeyman is Nicolas Maduro and uh <laughs> And Hugo Chavez. Those are the new boogeyman. Chavez's last act as a ghost was to get Joe Biden elected. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, But but didn't didn't Obamacare itself actually provide a tangible benefit to those same voters that that we were talking about? I mean, those that block of voters, that block of of white collar, I'm sorry, blue collar, white working class voters in the Midwest got a tangible result from Obamacare that did improve their lives. Many of them got an increase in the uh, earned income tax credit also, and Mm -hmm. still they voted for Trump. So does that not 
sort of say, well, your philosophy on do something for their lives and they'll vote for us sort of didn't work for after Obamacare, did it? Um, I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that that's necessarily fair. I, I think, look, I, I, the ACA is not the bill that I would have wanted passed, but it was certainly an improvement over the situation we had before. And I think, in general, if you poll people what they think about the ACA, I still think, even considering all of the incredible limitations that were baked into it that I'll probably turn to in a moment, I think it's still quite popular. And we don't know exactly if you were to pluck that out of history what the ripple effect would be. But, you know, by, uh, Obama was reelected. Um, Donald Trump did lose the popular vote in 2016. He lost it even worse this time. Um, I think that, first of all, it didn't guarantee insurance for everyone, so it left a lot of people still uninsured. It didn't have price controls that would stop probably the single biggest issue that it was trying to fix was that people were either going bankrupt or experiencing incredible economic strain as a result of their illnesses. This made it better, but it didn't it didn't get rid of that for a lot of people. And over the years, because it didn't have those controls, um, people started to hurt more and more. Their premiums kept going up. And when you combine that with a multi-year uh, political and media campaign to demonize the ACA as something fundamentally anti-American, and you combine that, by the way, it, it's not but like the, the ACA is just still said, popular. So the, the ACA it is, it is, is still popular. So, it, but, but, so that media campaign did not affect Americans perspectives or views on Obamacare or the ACA. They still like that. They appreciate it. They don't want it to go anywhere, but they still don't vote for Democrats. Well, still liking it doesn't mean that it didn't affect it. They could hypothetically like it more. They could give more credit to the Democrats for it in theory. But I would say, like, look at the Republican strategy. Um, You know, starting especially with Trump in 2016, they did continue with their we're going to we're going to get rid of it and all of that. But they did start talking about replacing it. And Trump campaigned in 2016 on effectively like he made comments that could be very easily interpreted to mean that he was going to set up single payer. It was never detailed because there was never anything there. But he would say things like that. And he kept saying throughout his first term that there's going to be this massive, awesome healthcare plan that's going to cover pre-existing conditions and things like that. I don't think that people necessarily saw it as we go with the Democrats, we get the ACA, we stick with the Republicans and we get rid of it. They thought they'd get something better. There's just nothing there. It was smoke and mirrors. Right. But I mean, listen, I love you, but the people who voted to get rid of the ACA won again. Joni Ernst won again. Tom Tillis won again. Um, David Perdue arguably won at least before he got the runoff. He had more votes than John Ossoff did. Mm-hmm. So, so these that people voted against Donald Trump, didn't they? I mean, you see a lot of split tickets in states yes. that went for uh, that went for Trump. Trump won Michigan by more than Gary Peters won Michigan by. Trump mm-hmm. certainly lost, and and just as we've been recording, the APA has once uh, the AP has now again, again called um, uh, Georgia for Donald Trump uh, for mm-hmm. Joe Biden after um, the recount. So Donald Trump lost Georgia, but David Perdue perhaps may win in the runoff. We'll get to that some other day but um but some of these states like Wisconsin they still have these senators who aren't really that afraid i don't think ron johnson's afraid of losing his seat joni ernst won her seat susan yeah. collins tom tillis won his seat sorry um so these senators let me let me let me switch my question a little bit the reason i'm asking that is do you think states like georgia um arizona michigan 
Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. When when we hear folks on the news talk about, you know, Joe Biden changed the map. Do you think he really changed the map, or do you think Georgia and Arizona have taken a brief respite from the Republican Party to get rid of Donald Trump, but are going to really be Republican right after he leaves, uh, you know, during the next election anyway? Yeah, I, no, I think you're probably onto something. I, I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but like we can't, they finally flipped. Like Arizona had, you know, flipped once in the not too distant past, Georgia more distantly than that. If any Democrats are like, we got a new wall in the South, um, I yeah, would well, not I mean, get so comfortable. But we, but we hear people talk about uh, constantly. G- Georgia is now a potential swing state, blue state. Texas. How many years have we been hearing people talk about how close Texas could yeah. come? I don't know about you. I put Texas on my prediction map this time simply because I thought maybe this is the year. But, but yeah, it kind of goes did, back to too. the. Did you? It yeah. Was, well, we were all being very I hopeful, lived right? There. It was aspirational, <laughs> right. but I did put but, it too. <laughs> but you, but you knew that it was unlikely, and I knew that it was unlikely yes. when I when I put it on mine as well. But um, I will say, I got every other state right except for Texas, and unfortunately, my own home state. But um, uh, <laughs> North Carolina <laughs> didn't go the way I thought it would t- either. But yeah. I, I tell people all the time, I don't think I think that when you we when Democrats sit on their laurels and think the demographics of places like Texas and Georgia, and North Carolina are changing enough that Democrats are going to be able to put them in play. I say, I know that we that Trump only lost North Carolina by 70,000, or won North Carolina by 70,000 votes this time, but I'm telling you, it's, it's not going to be that close. Every other statewide Republican on the, on the ballot in North Carolina this year won, unless they were running against an incumbent. And so, so this was not a year... If, if you ask me, at least here in this state, that Democrats won anything. I mean, this was a, this was a year that Donald Trump lost. Um, he lost his seat and, and Democrats lost every other seat. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess I've, you've, you've sort of answered this a little bit, but, you know, I've, we've got a question from a, from a listener who wanted me to ask you, what does the Republican Party need to do to rehabilitate? But I, I want to know what the Democrat Party needs to do to rehabilitate, because I don't think that the Republicans have to rehabilitate as much as the Democrats do. I mean, yeah, a lot, honestly. I mean, my job basically is, is trying to do that. Um, but I think, look, Joe Biden won, so that's great. I'm glad. Um, you know, Hillary came close, but I, I think we could one thing that we could try is to stop running candidates like that. Like actually run people, run run candidates that are going to excite people. I think that when the Democrats do that, they can do quite well. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton was obviously popular. Barack Obama did incredibly well. Um, and I think in no small part, not just because he was charismatic and or whatever, but that uh, at, to my earlier point, he really did seem to believe what he said. He really did seem like he cared about these things. I think that that aura faded year by year. Um, but I think that that same advice to a lot of a lot of these Senate candidates, the, the, the candidates that we ran, including in Texas and against Mitch McConnell, um, were not necessarily the most dynamic, awesome candidates. Candidates that, you know, the ACA, again, I keep we're we're holding up as an example of providing material benefits, which it is, but it is it's not sort of my preferred policy or anything like that. You can go to ballot initiatives like in Florida, they they like effectively doubled their minimum wage start, you know, gradually between now and 2026. Uh, drug legalization and decriminalization passed in in multiple states around the country. Like there were places where 
more quote unquote leftist policies were doing but very well, but didn't but aren't have you making my candidates argument. that were. But aren't you making well, my argument a little bit the for Democrats me? People, people do, people do like those policies, but, but don't. But think- Joe Biden isn't running on drug decriminalization. He's not running on doubling the federal minimum wage. These are things that they could be running on, but they're not. But so didn't they in, run on? Didn't didn't Republicans effectively force Democrats to run on something like defund the police? Though, I mean, did defund the police hurt I don't Democrats? Think so. I, I, I'm sure that you can find someone who would say that, but no, I don't think so. I, I just, who was, who was running on that? Who, who honestly? No, like, I don't I, think anybody was running on that, but didn't Republicans convincingly make the case that this is what Democrats want to do? Did Democrats not do a good enough job of pushing back and saying, no, this is not what we want to do. We don't want to defund the police. Well, I mean, in theory, that's one way that they could have responded. Another is that they could have actually messaged you know, in this year of the biggest social movement of our lifetimes, they could have done a much better job. They effectively, they did a couple of photo shoots. They renamed a few streets. What were they proposing? Like, I, I, like if they're not going to actually make their own case in terms of what they really fundamentally want to do to reshape criminal justice, law enforcement, all of that, well, then sure, a lot of these conservatives are going to listen to the spin put on it by the Republicans. We see Great. the same thing, by the way, with the climate crisis. Where good point. No, I agree with that. D- but but did the phrasing of D- if you're explaining, you're losing, right? And and I I'll be the first to say what the came good came out of this crisis in this you know the crisis of unarmed black men being shot or kneeled had their having their necks kneeled on. We got rid of a few statues. We changed the name of a middle school or two. But mm-hmm. what actual tangible change? took place, and I'll be the first to say, not really that much, but did Democrats waste too much time by putting Band-Aids on things, by changing the names of these schools, by taking down these Confederate statues? There's a story um, this week that I think at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, um, there's a a movement to mo- remove a, a big boulder that's been sitting in a field in the in the school campus for for years, someone found out that somewhere in the newspaper 90 years ago, someone used a derogatory term for a black person in describing this rock, and now there's a movement to move the rock. Did the move did the Democrats or the or the left focus too hard on some of the band-aids instead of focusing on the actual fixing of the boat? <laughs> I think Look, I, w- I would say, absent much context, definitely, I agree with you. I I guess in this area, I'm more of a cynic. I don't think that that was ever, I don't think that beyond the Band-Aids, there was ever much of a consideration. I don't, I don't think the vast majority of elected Democrats, you know, sure, on some level, they don't like these things. When they see them, they consider them tragedies. They don't feel that this is a systemic series of injustices that can be traced back to overly like permissive behavior uh, allowed you know by police officers that the training is fundamentally broken that for a long time there's been this really not investigated infiltration of police officers by white supremacists and militias and things like that i don't think that they really ever considered some sort of big sweeping legislation that would change this even to the extent that the federal government could because obviously a lot of this has to be done at the state level some people do like cory bush you know new congresswoman like she cares about this she was an activist herself coming out of ferguson like she speaks about this with authority 
Nancy Pelosi can do a photo shoot because Nancy Pelosi, you know, she comes from San Francisco. She's been in DC for 50 years. Like she is not, it, it for them, I really don't think it was. We either rename a state in D, or a street in DC, or we give them like really big, substantive, meaty legislation to run on and eventually pass. I don't think that that was ever in the cards for the vast majority of elected Democrats. But if but if Democrats are willing to say, or I'm sorry, are not willing to say, let's not let's not make the discussion about the statue, the Washington Monument, or the Jefferson Memorial. You know, th- there were. A, that whole rally that Donald Trump did in South Dakota where he was trying to protect Mount Rushmore because Democrats were going to come and try to blow it up and get rid of all these <laughs> monuments. Did, did Democrats make a mistake by not saying, idiots, we don't want to take down the Washington Monument. We don't want to blow up Mount Rushmore. That's not our goal. What we want to do is X, Y, or Z and whatever those real tangible changes were. I guess our... Are there Democrats in Congress who are too afraid of Twitter um, and too afraid of Twitter mobs being pissed at them that they are unwilling to say? I, mean, I can't. Help, I don't know if you care about care for Bill Maher or not, but he did it. He did his monologue last week on uh, some of the uh, apologists, like um, I guess Anne Hathaway was in The Witches, this this fictional mm-hmm. Roald Dahl. Uh, movie and she had the three she had three fingers i watched it too she had three bony fingers and she did she apologized that her character's three fingers were insensitive to um people with limb differences and i heard Mm -hmm. that and i thought wait wait, what like is there a point where someone needs to say listen i'm not going to apologize for a fictional movie and folks on twitter just need to calm the hell down Mm mm-hmm um, yeah, I'd, I had heard about that. Um, I don't know. It's it's tough. So I have, um, and, and this is sort of related, I have a pretty close relationship with with my audience. You know, I respond to comments live in the show. We we tweet to each other. We talk on, on uh, Twitch and stuff like that. And I've had um, times where things that I've said, you know, I've had messages from people who are like, you know, it seems like you're criticizing this about a person. Well, just, you know, I want you to know, I I love your show. I love watching you, but this is true of me. And it kills me when I get messages like that. And like, sure, sometimes they may think, well, God, really, do I have to watch out for so much? But if you don't want to hurt people who don't deserve to be hurt, sometimes, yeah, we do need to rethink things that who it would be easier Who makes the decision to, to be hurt by something? I mean, aren't, don't we make Whoever's the decisions ourselves? Whoever's experiencing the feelings. Right, but don't we make the decisions ourselves to not be hurt? I get, I've been called faggot so many times on national media mm-hmm. <laughs> by someone, and at some point you just, I just made the decision. Listen, that that word isn't going to bother me, and I'm not going to care mm-hmm. about it. And I mean, I, I go back to thinking about I mean, when you when you tell that story to me about your listeners saying it to you, I personally laugh. And I want to come and shake you, John, for being bothered by it, because I think, look at your record. You have a record of defending any oppressed group of people <laughs> that, that, that needs to be defending and to be defended. You have, you have shown that you are not insensitive. When you make a comment that may be construed as insensitive, I would see it and recognize that is not what you meant. It might have been a joke. It might have been a misspeak. The fact that Bernie Sanders did not have a black 
staff member in a high-level position on his campaign in 2016 did not negate the fact that he had been fighting for civil rights every single day of his life since the 50s and 60s. But I, and I didn't consider him racist for not having happening for coming from Vermont, the whitest state in America, mm-hmm. and happening to not have a black person on his staff. But he got attacked as being racist for something like that. And I think, when are we going to stop seeing the trees and seeing and see the forest instead? I mean, is there not a point that Democrats must say, or liberals, progressives, younger generations must say, you know what? We can't be bothered by every single tiny slight on the internet because that's what's making so many of these people on the right or people in the middle rush to the right because they're afraid they're going to get canceled too. Um, so, yeah, look, look, it's tough. And I'm not going to say that I don't occasionally get bothered by, you know, having to consider something or deal with something. I, I try to focus on the fact that, like, I, I appreciate what you said about me, but but I approach it as you're never done. Like you're never, and, and I think that some people. Well, you're you done as soon as they cancel your ass for it. You know, ah, <laughs> I mean, once you I, once you get canceled for something, you, then you are. Well, we, we will see, but I would say, like uh, you know, Bill Maher. Obviously, he's someone who considers himself to be a very you know whatever progressive on race, but it can also lead someone like him to think that oh, I've reached the point where I can throw around the N word and it's totally fine. And come to discover that a guy who's incredibly rich and has lived in L.A. for literally decades isn't necessarily as in tune with the community that he thinks he's, you know, like uh, just saying, like, it's not from it's not always going to be up to me because I'm not a part of these groups. But but I would also say, and this is a perfectly fine conversation to continue. I think one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about a lot of political speech is that it is presented as if it is neutral, uh, but it is not. So we like, for instance, we have a term like political correctness. Um, which in theory just means uh, either not saying something because it will offend someone or expecting that people will not say something because it offends someone. But in practice, it's not neutral like I just described it. It basically only describes people who are a little bit left of center or beyond having an issue with something. But those are not the only people that have issue with things or get worked up about things or arguably get triggered about things. Like, triggered again is another oh, term God. that only applies to I got to use that. I got to jump on that, though, because isn't that what it is? Isn't that the goal? I was, uh, uh, you may know I'm very good, close friends with Megan McCain. We disagree on about a lot of things, but I love her. Um, I was with her <laughs> on the day that Donald Trump Jr. came and did the view. I was I had I flew up specifically to be there with her that day because uh, I knew it would be difficult. His book is called Triggered and I know the I know the, I won't call him a man, I'm going to call him a boy. I know the boy, Donald mm-hmm. Trump Jr. and I know that his goal in life is to trigger people. I know that he went on that show hoping to get make news because he pissed off Whoopi or Joy. I know that mm-hmm. that is what a lot of conservatives get a a sick joy out of triggering liberals. And so I think to myself, you know what? And this is I'm going to use I'm going to use gay stuff because I feel like since I'm gay I get to use it, but I'll probably piss off somebody for saying it. But I think to myself, you know what? If I just decided right now from here on out the word fag doesn't bother me. And if every gay person in America just said you know what? We've decided that word doesn't bother us anymore. Donald Trump Jr. couldn't trigger us anymore. It wouldn't work. 
If I said it, then Neil Patrick Harris said it, Anderson Cooper, and every high, you know, high profile gay man and woman in this country said, mm-hmm. you know what, from now on out, from here on out, when you say faggot, I don't care. That take, that's what takes the power out of it, right? Doesn't that take the power out of it? I'm not telling any other group to, to decide that the N-word is, not appro- is, is fine now. I can't say that word. Wouldn't be able to say it if they told me I could. I could, can't do it. But I do believe that we oftentimes give more power to those folks who are bullies by having our feelings mm-hmm. hurt. And I tell my son all the time, you know what? The only reason people, bullies do these things is because they know it hurts your feelings. And we have the choice, we have the power to say, that doesn't work anymore. That doesn't mm-hmm. affect us. If you're trying to make fun of people with limb differences and you do so, by having someone with three fingers in your movie and that's your intention, that's not going to work. It's not going to bother us. And if you do it and and that wasn't your intention, then that's not going to bother us either. And at some point, I wonder if there is a need for a come to Jesus meeting or amongst those who that might be offensive to, a come to, <laughs> to, to Muhammad meeting, whatever it is, to just say, you know what? Let's just stop giving people the power over us to be offend to offend us. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I would suspect that what you're saying is probably true. That a lot of people, in theory, could either train themselves or rethink the way they think about it. But I do also have to admit that I am only speculating because I am, by you know, virtue of a variety of different things, as insulated from that sort of experience as is possible. Right. There's no term that has any historic value that instantly can destroy me. I've been protected from that. But I would also say, look, obviously you're right. People get freaked out about things. They have issue with things. There are social campaigns to change words and all of that. But I do think that we focus on that layer of it, which you know, there's a good reason to focus on it. People on both sides do talk about it a lot. But I don't think fundamentally, that's what bothers whatever group we're talking about the most. I think the actual discrimination, whether personal bigotry, you know, or systemic right. discrimination is, is far more important. We we focus on, it's almost like focusing on, you know, using metal straws rather than shutting down coal plants because we have or, personal control or over like it. Focus, or like focusing on monuments and names of streets and confederate statues instead of getting rid of qualified immunity, right? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Shouldn't maybe. we be getting rid of qualified immunity or taking away the power of the DA to make the decision about uh, about whether or not police should be charged? <laughs> instead I mean, I, of, say, I say both, but right? yes. I mean, we should yes, do, yeah. obviously. Right, but, but, but some of them actually tangibly get people killed, and some mm-hmm. of them are offensive and maybe should be taken down. I mean, I, I don't see any reason why we should be celebrating Confederate soldiers either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't get the point in celebrating them, either. but I would prioritize the tangible changes. And once we get the qualified immunity taken away, then we'll take care of the Confederate soldiers. But there's only so much political capital. Yep. And I worry we wasted that political capital on changing the name of a middle school instead of, you know, and I've said this before, the middle school I went to the name was changed because it came out. I went to that school many years ago. I won't say how long. Um, <laughs> and and had no idea that the person it was named after had was a white 
supremacist in the late 1800s um, when everybody in North Carolina was. Um, but that name was changed. And I think, you know what? While, while the school board is patting itself on the back for changing the name of that school that no one knew who was named after, did they do a thing about the number of black boys who are placed in special ed at a four times higher rate than white boys are? Did they do a thing mm-hmm. about the the injustices or the inequalities in standardized testing and how that and how those work against people who are of color? No, they didn't do anything that actually affects these kids' schooling, but they patted themselves on the back and then they moved on to something else. And that pisses me off more than anything. I get as pissed off with you as you do about band-aids not being not mm-hmm. solving the real problem. Changing the name of that school isn't going to get one of those young boys out of that special ed class who doesn't deserve to be there. But they've moved on and they're not working on that. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, ideally we would do both. I, I, I would say I think the, the vast majority move on because they probably rightfully see that this is the limit of what they can do. But some, like, you know, I previously mentioned Cory Bush, some eventually run for and eventually get into Congress and ho- hopefully can do right. more there. Um. Yeah, I want to keep having this conversation with you for a much longer, but we got to move on to <laughs> questions from our questions from our listeners. Um, we asked folks to send in questions, and they were sent in specifically for you uh, this week, John, um, at Politicon on Twitter or at Politicon on Instagram, or you can email them to us uh, at podcasts at Politicon dot com. Jason from Baltimore asks: Are you afraid that Biden is too close to neocons? Huh, that's a good question. Um. It's not. I, I'm not focusing as much on his closeness to neocons as neolibs. I guess if I had to speak broadly. Um, <laughs> okay. Sure. I, I think if you, if someone listening to this has a concern that Joe Biden will return to the Obama era foreign policy, which has some great successes, but also has a hell of a lot of drone strikes and continued military engagements. Um, yeah, I, I think. We'll know in a few weeks. We're going to see who he picks for, you know, some of these positions to head up Department of Defense and, you know, other things like that. We'll we'll see. Uh, But I I don't think that's an irrational fear to have. Tamara from Akron asks, will you ever trust Kamala Harris? Uh, That's a great question. Um, These are are viewers of yours, too, it sounds like. She could... She could win me over by... It would be very difficult because the VP doesn't generally, outside of, you know, under George W. Bush, doesn't generally have much power. But if we find out behind the scenes that she's really pushing Joe Biden, if if she, like like how Joe Biden helped champion some pieces of legislation under Obama, if, look, if she ends up doing that for a public option or for some big environment bill or something like that, that would be great. You know, she's definitely going to run for president in four years. If she starts working now to reassure progressives that she has our back. I think she could win people over. It's difficult considering her history, but I don't think it's impossible. Four years, so you don't think Biden will run for a second term? I He's going to be very old. I don't think he has to. Like, let him let him rest. If let, Bi- him rest. let me ask this. If Trump were to decide to run for another term in 2024, would you want him to run, I mean, assuming he runs, uh, he, I'm sure he will say he's going to, whether he does it or not, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I, I'm skeptical of. But if, assuming he runs um, and has the nomination, would you want him to run against uh, another Democrat, or would you want him to run against Biden, who we know 
at least from this experience, has been able to beat him once? That's a, that's a great question. I, I haven't actually had it framed that way. Um, we're we're going to have to see how the midterms go. We're going to have to see how much the Dems are actually get able to get past a Senate that might still be, you know, uh, uh, led by Mitch McConnell. Obviously, the benefit to Biden would be he's already won and he'd have, you know, sort of the benefits of incumbency. But I... I don't know what January is going to be like. It's hard to imagine what America is going to be like in four years. I, look, I have Oof. other people who aren't even legally allowed to run for president yet that I'm pulling for for four years. We'll have to see. I just I think he's going to be he's going to be too old. Like he's I'm not one of those people that thinks that like he's about to to lose his mind or die or anything like that. I'm really not. But he is already the oldest president literally ever that will be sworn in. I just I think it's too much to to do a nationwide campaign and, and not all legally that. allowed. You mean uh, Congresswoman Casio uh, Cortez? Yes, to run in four years. Okay, um, David from Portland asks, "What do you want from tr- for Trump when he's out of office?" <laughs> uh, what I want for him, he will never get because wealthy, powerful, well-connected people never suffer any consequences, let alone really bad ones. Um, what I want for him is to spend a little bit of time with his family. Um, he's aging oh, fast, Oh, aren't you so too. nice? I just, like... Do you think Joe I, Biden I, should pardon him? No. No. I, I don't think Joe Biden will pursue anything. Like, whether the states do or the DOJ independently does, That that's possible, although I think unlikely. But no, I think Joe Biden is going to be like Barack Obama. He's going to be looking forward, not looking back. Um... And and that scares me because it continues a precedent that as long as you make it to the end of your term, you're fine. Like, no matter what you did, it doesn't count for anything. I think that that is scary. Last one. Connie from Houston asks, is there room for Trump supporters and progressives in the same country? Uh, there's going to have to be. I mean, one way or another. Um, but, yeah, look, I do think that there are some things uh, that, that Trump supporters and progressives can agree on. It seems very difficult, and the dialogue is going to probably have to be incredibly indirect because direct conversations don't seem to be going all that productively. But I do think that there are some things, um, you know, it, it's a much longer conversation. We, we started to have it about the, the ACA. I think that there are some policies that could help to improve the quality of life of a lot of these Trump supporters, but they are being trained to have very few policy-based expectations for government and to desire something else from their political leaders, like the trolling that you said from Don Jr. Like they are starting to want that, not just from their pundits from, but from their politicians as well. And then at at a certain point, are we speaking the same language? If I'm speaking about the policies I want and you want lib tears, that's not necessarily, those don't line up well, but, but I do think it is possible. Perhaps there will be some president that can bridge that divide. We haven't seen it yet. If Biden did a, better job than some. John, how the heck are we going to get along? <laughs> well, you and I at least are going to because we keep talking. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm hoping that we will see a pandemic that fades away with the rapid delivery of the vaccine. I think that will cause a lot of, um, cause the, the end of a lot of human suffering. A lot of families are really suffering with those losses. I know that my family has. Um, I think that that will help. And I think we're all going to, get back a little bit of our sanity with Joe Biden because the news won't be quite as crazy on a daily basis. 
<laughs> and Donald Trump think? will be jo- Donald Trump may be right about one thing. They might not have the ratings that they did before on the <laughs> on That's the true. news. But I, I I think I'm going to be perfectly happy with it. I turned the news off in March and didn't turn it back on until about a month ago. Uh, and I never had a I never had a better break in my life. Uh, it was lovely. John Idarola, you can hear him. You can watch him on the Damage Report on TYT. Tell us all again because every time um, Jenk is on or, or Anna's on, we have a new. Uh, there's a new way that people can find TYT. I know it's on YouTube TV now. Where else can yeah, we see no, it? Yeah, we're on YouTube TV. You can go to twitch.tv slash TYT. My channel is The Damage Report, uh, available on YouTube um, and that sort of thing. But just search The Damage Report and I'll probably come up. And John Idarola, um, we'll have him tagged in all of our social media, but you can follow him on Thank Twitter you. and Instagram, John Idarola, I-A-D-A-R-O-L-A. Uh, and Thank you so much for coming back and joining us um, in our in our quarantine life. You're one of the only people who, like I said, <laughs> got to see us, got to be a part of a panel in person. But um, uh, it's it's nice to catch up with you, and I'm so glad that you came back. And we hope you come back again. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks a lot, John. <laughs>